Hello friends, my name is Wally and I'm the Senior Associate Pastor here at Jericho Ridge Community Church. If you've been tracking with us, we've spent the month of January in the book of Job exploring what Job has to say about living in suffering, particularly around the link between piety and prosperity. In other words, if I do the right things and live the right way, shouldn't God reward me for that? Or alternatively, if I do the wrong things, make bad choices, will God punish me for that? And the logical concluding point for that trajectory of thought is that by our actions and words, we can control whether or not we suffer. But then along comes the book of Job, a story that clearly shows us that suffering doesn't operate in such a neat and tidy contractual theological box. God alone knows the why is to all our suffering. Yes, some of it does exist in a cause and effect relationship. For example, if I take a hammer and hit my hand with it, I will cause suffering. But ultimately, for most of our suffering, we submit to God's sovereignty because when we suffer, it's often without an answer to a why. So our focus today is not on answering the why behind our suffering, but rather on answering the how in our suffering. How do we suffer? Or more accurately, how do we respond to suffering, particularly when we can't control its reality in our lives? When my back is up against the wall of suffering and it's out of my control to fix or cure, what do I do? How do you re-engage in a healthy state of mind and in life when your suffering is acute or prolonged, chronic, or even terminal in nature? Friends, each of us has a story to tell that includes chapters of real suffering. I know my story does, and I'd like to share some highlights, some snippets of my chapters that include suffering. At age seven, I was abducted and abused, and that led to 40 plus years of depression and low self-esteem. When I was 20, I injured my back playing hockey, and today it's riddled with debilitating arthritis and bone spurs and two herniated discs. I've lived through infertility with my spouse. I've lived through estranged family relationships and the death of loved ones. And over the last several years, I've lived with ongoing and often debilitating anxiety. And those are just the highlights of my story. Friends, we all have our stories. And thankfully, God doesn't shy away from stories of suffering. Case in point, Job's story. It's preserved for all of humanity to identify with and engage in. Job's an example who helps us answer the how question in our response to suffering. So let's turn to a story now in Job chapters 27 and 28. We pick up Job in a place of great anguish and anger, which Rachel Schwartz unpacked in our last message in this series. Job's in anguish because of incredible suffering, and he's angry because of the responses he's been getting from his friends. Friends who are saying that Job must have made bad or sinful decisions for God to bring all this suffering on him. And already we can relate to Job on two fronts. First of all, We suffer to varying degrees in our lives. Jesus stated this unequivocally in John 16, 33. He said, you will have many trials and sorrows on this earth. And like Job, we also have people around us when we suffer who are giving advice, trying to influence how we respond, or at the very least, they're watching how we're going to respond to suffering. And in Job chapter 27 and 28, we start to see Job's ultimate response while he's in the midst of his suffering. Now, let me just prepare you for what we're about to find. As we read Job, 
we're, discover, we're going to discover something that may be unpalatable for many of us, myself included. So brace yourself for what I'm about to say. Friends, suffering can help. Yeah, I said help us clarify our priorities and focus us on the deeper eternal aspects of life. The deeper the pain, the greater the possibility exists for a clearer vision. The more we hurt, the better we may be able to determine what really matters in life. Now let me be the first to confess that these statements are hard for us and for me to live into personally. I wrestle with them because they don't fit easily into how I live my life. And that's probably true for you as well. We simply do not embrace suffering. Our culture has taught us to do everything possible to avoid suffering. And frankly, that's my first reaction. Avoidance. Unfortunately, that's not the reality of being human. Now, let's be clear. God does not want us to suffer. In fact, he never even intended for us to suffer or die. The depictions of the Garden of Eden in Genesis and the coming eternal reality described in Revelation clearly reveal a life with the absence of suffering. And when Jesus said we would suffer in this world, he did not say that God would cause us to suffer. But in our broken existence, suffering exists. And God can and does use suffering if we allow him to. He uses it both to clarify our priorities and to focus us on the deeper, eternal aspects of life. Pastor John Piper said, Sometimes massive suffering comes so close to home that for a brief season the fog of our foolish security clears and we can see the sheer precipice of eternity one step away. The cold wobble passes through our knees and for a moment everything in the universe looks different. Those are good times for holy realism. Oh, how hollow much of our lives seem in those moments. As Job speaks today, he verifies all of this, urging us to pause and reassess in our times of suffering. Once his children were taken from him, his business went belly up, his health went desperately downhill, we never hear Job lamenting a missed business opportunity. We never hear him longing to get back in the corporate camel or sheep business. As John Piper said, you just don't think about that stuff when you're hanging on to life by a thread. The suffering, albeit agonizing, helps clarify our priorities and focuses us on eternal aspects of life. And I did say, friends, these statements are hard and challenging. I'm still in the process of acceptance and practice that suffering can be beneficial for me. It's counterintuitive. But the truth is, and we'll find out today, God can use suffering for my good if I enter it, into it, and engage Him in it. In other words, not until I acknowledge this truth and begin to practice it, will I glean its benefits, as we'll see in Job's life. Job's living in the crucible of suffering, but his misery in that difficult arena is pushing him to focus on things that really matter. His friends, as we've heard in previous message, have been pointing fingers, they've lectured, they've insulted, and they've condemned him. But Job decides to take his eyes off of what's physically around him and allow truth to distill in his mind to the point where he begins to see things differently. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.18 when he says, So we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see 
will last forever. I think personally that Paul had the example of Job in his mind as he wrote those words. Job's going to look past the advice and criticisms, stop focusing on his wounds, and begin again to focus on what he knows to be true of God. And out of that, five priorities, five truths emerge for Job, which we can assimilate into our lives today. The first priority we see emerging in Job chapter 27 is Job's renewed vertical perspective in his relationship with God. Let's read Job 27, starting at verse 1 down to verse 12. Verse 1, Job continued speaking to his friends. He said, I vow by the living God who has taken away my rights, by the Almighty who has embittered my soul. As long as I live, while I have breath from God, my lips will speak no evil and my tongue will speak no lies. I will never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until I die. I will maintain my innocence without wavering. My conscience is clear for as long as I live. May my enemy be, my enemy be punished like the wicked. May my adversary like those who do evil. For what hope do the godless have when God cuts them off and takes away their life? Will God listen to their cry when troubles come upon them? Can they take delight in the Almighty? Can they call to God at any time? I'll teach you about God's power. I will not conceal anything concerning the Almighty. But you have seen all this, yet you say all these useless things to me. In those 12 verses, Job makes seven primary statements, and he repeatedly emphasizes God as the main character of his thoughts. In verse 2, he refers to God who's living and has taken away his rights, the Almighty who's embittered his soul. Verse 3, he says, while I have breath from God. Verse 8, when God takes people's lives. Verse 9, will God listen to their cry? Verse 10, they delight in the Almighty, they call on God. Verse 11, I'll teach you about God's power, I'll teach you about the Almighty. God Almighty is re-emerging at the forefront of Job's thoughts while he's suffering. And Job starts rehearsing what he knows to be true about his God. And subsequently, Job's priorities are crystallizing with the first priority being his relationship with God. Job is thinking and he wants those around him, his friends, to be thinking about who God is and, and how God relates to humanity. It's his highest priority all of a sudden, even higher than making the suffering stop. He's stating the things that he knows to be true about his God. Friends, that which comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we need to ask ourselves, what comes to mind when I think about God, both in the good times and in the difficult times? Do you see God as the one who gives you the gift of breath and keeps your heart beating? Do you see him as the judge over your rights and your wrongs? Do you acknowledge that his care and power are greater than anything humanity could procure for you? Or do you see him as remote, out of touch with what you're experiencing today? Your view of God makes all the difference in how you view life, be that in good times or in times of suffering. Think of Job's situation. He's now childless, he's bankrupt, estranged, and diseased. He's living with boils, a high fever, in constant pain. He's misunderstood, he's being blamed for secret sins, and he's rejected by those who once respected him. How in the world does he go on and re-engage a healthy life? There's only one answer. His view of God reorients him. And in light of that, he's recommitting himself to things that matter, to the things that he knows to be true. 
in a swirl of humanistic thinking coming from his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job decides to focus fully on the things of God. In fact, he says because he's so focused, he will not pad the record. He will not tell them what isn't true. Reading Job 27, 3-5 again, As long as I live, while I have breath from God, my lips will speak no evil and my tongue will speak no lies. I will never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until the day I die. And this emerges as Job's second priority in his time of suffering, living with integrity. Job's not going to check out. He's not going to fake it. He's not going to try to manipulate a desired outcome. He's only going to speak the truth. Think about that intentional priority, the choice not to lie, the determination to gain full control of your words before you speak. Friends, let's not ignore the power of our words. Job realizes the potential impact of his speech, and in effect, he says, my lips are going to be lips of integrity. I refuse to use them as a vehicle of deceit or deception. And in light of that, Job restates his disagreement with his friends, his critics' conclusions. He says, I'll never concede that you're right. I'll defend my integrity until I die. I'll maintain my innocence without wavering. Verse 6, my conscience is clear for as long as I live. He's not going to call what is wrong right. That would go against what God has always called him to. Job's not going to sacrifice his integrity and put himself in the same arena as his misguided friends. Which brings us to Job's third priority. Yes, wrong is going to occur but it will not ultimately triumph. Starting at verse 13 in Job chapter 27, Job changes the subject from God and he shifts his attention to the wicked. He says, this is what the wicked will receive from God. This is their inheritance from the Almighty. They may have many children, but the children will die in war or starve to death. Those who survive will die of a plague and, and not even their widows will mourn them. Evil people will have piles of money and may store away mounds of clothing, but the righteous will wear that clothing and the innocent will divide that money. In other words, friends, things are not going to go well for the wicked. For example, look at that last statement in verse 17. Evil people may have a lot of money, they may have more clothes in the closet, but they'll wind up leaving them to the righteous. Remember that materialistic saying that you often find on a person's license plate? He who dies with the most toys wins. The truth is, he who dies with the most toys, according to Job, passes them off to the righteous. Now, what does that mean? Simply, wrong will occur, but it will not ultimately triumph. God is always and always will working out all things justly. He knows who's righteous at heart. He knows who's wicked. He's the divine judge. He's not ignorant of this. He's not confused about this. And Job has come to realize this as his third focus. And that brings a sense of calming justice in the midst of his puzzling suffering. So just to recap so far, in the midst of his suffering, Job's priorities, his focus is shifting. He's focusing in on God, his relationship with God, and what he knows to be true about God, priority number one. He's decided that he'll move forward with integrity. He concludes that wrong will occur, but it will not triumph. The context of incredible suffering is enabling Job to grasp and crystallize these internal, uh, eternal realities. Now, as we arrive at his fourth and his fifth priorities, we find Job shifting from knowledge, which is human intellectual information, to the position of wisdom, which is spiritual perception. 
With this fourth priority, Job focuses on the pursuit of wisdom and understanding. Like any of us, Job still wants to know the whys behind his suffering. But look where his refined search takes him and can take us. Reading in chapter 28 now of Job, verses 1 to 3. People know where to mine silver and how to refine gold. They know where to dig iron from the earth and how to smelt copper from rock. They know how to shine light in the darkness and explore the farthest regions of the earth as they search in the dark for ore. Verse 6, here the rocks contain precious lapis lazuli and the dust contains gold. Verse 10, they cut tunnels in the rocks and they uncover precious stones. They dam up the trickling streams and they bring to light the hidden treasures. And then in verse 12 comes two crucial questions. But do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? Verse 13, no one knows where to find it, for it's not found among the living. It's not here, says the ocean, nor is it here, says the sea. It can't be bought with gold. It can't be purchased with silver. Consider what Job's saying. You can dig into the earth and you'll find precious jewels and metals, but you won't find wisdom. Probe into hidden spaces and mysteries are going to unfold for you, but you won't find wisdom. Study nature's wonders and there'll be exciting discoveries, but you won't find wisdom. As helpful as exploration and education may be, or even being mentored by the brightest, none of that will impart wisdom. It's not found in textbooks or discoveries or in another person's mind. According to Job's fourth priority, actually seeking wisdom through human effort is a futile endeavor. Friends, here's a simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom is looking at life from God's point of view. When we employ wisdom, we're viewing life as God sees it. That's why it's so valuable to think of God's thoughts and focus our relationship with God like we talked about in priority number one. You look at difficulties and tests as God looks at them. You look at family and relationships as God looks at them. You interpret current event events as God interprets them. You see truth even if others are misguided by deception. Let's go a step further and define understanding. Understanding is responding to life's struggles and circumstances and challenges as God would have us respond. Not in panic and confusion, not out of our own strength and resources, not forfeiting our biblical values such as integrity. Instead, when we have understanding, we respond to life's challenges as God calls us to respond. We believe in him and we trust him. We refuse to let our pain or our fears win the day. We don't operate our lives according to human impulses or what's popular or correct in society. Friends, it's so important that we are pursuing wisdom and responding in understanding, especially in suffering. And Job reminds us that neither can be found by our own effort or in anyone else. It's God who graciously provides both of those. Verse 20 again, but do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? Not where do we get advice? Not where does good opinions come from? Where can we find wisdom? Where can we find understanding? The answer leads us to Job's fifth priority. Reading in Job 28, 23 to 28. God alone understands the way to wisdom. He knows where it can be found. For he looks throughout the whole earth and he sees everything under the heavens. He decided how hard the winds should blow and how much rain should fall. 
He made the laws for rain and laid out the path for lightning. And then he saw wisdom and evaluated it. He set it in place and examined it thoroughly. And this is what he says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom. To forsake evil is real understanding. Friends, you can earn PhDs and never get wisdom or have understanding. I have two master's degrees, one in theology, one in church ministry, and neither one of those degrees came with a certificate declaring me as ultimately and finally wise. You can't take a class on the fear of the Lord and receive a grade of wise and understanding from your professor. And by fear of the Lord, I'm referring to an awe-inspired respect for God accompanied by a just hatred of anything that opposes God. That is determined by God who alone searches and knows your heart. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs 9, verse 10, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in understanding. And that sums up Job's fifth priority. Cultivating a holy respect for the Lord is what gives us wisdom and understanding. Friends, all five of these priorities emerged and crystallized for Job within the suffering that he was experiencing. His friends wanted him to acquiesce to the suffering. His inclination may have been to escape, avoid the suffering. But ultimately, Job didn't resist the suffering. Instead, he accepted it. He learned from it. He reprioritized his life because of it. He focused on God and his relationship with God first. Next, he decided that he would suffer with integrity. And then he determined the truth that wrong will occur, but it will not triumph. He wouldn't seek wisdom through human effort because that's a waste of time. That was his fourth priority. And lastly, he cultivated a relational, a holy respect for the Lord because that's what gives wisdom and understanding. All of this insight and perspective emerges while Job is at the height of his suffering. Piety, prosperity, empty words of compassion or advice, doubt, depression. Job resolutely decides that none of them will determine how he responds when his back's up against the wall, or more appropriately, when he's lying face down in the ashes of suffering. Easy to do? You know the answer to that question. Like Job, our suffering is too multifaceted and it cuts too deep for a quick band-aid to cover the pain. Earlier, I shared snippets of my personal suffering. Your story is different, but it's equally real. As a pastor, I listen as you share of economic hardship, bankruptcy, divorce, death of a loved one, abuse, bullying, Addiction, autism, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, blindness, cancer, COVID, isolation, fear, unanswered prayer, spiritual attack, false judgment, divine silence. It's a long list and there's a face and a voice behind each one of these conversations. Friends, your stories are real. And they are heard. Whether seemingly small or disruptingly acute, we all taste suffering. We all have hard chapters in our story. So how do we respond? Will we allow suffering to determine the course of our lives? Job says a resounding no. 
Please don't feel sorry for me, he says. Please don't tell me to do this or that to get over it. Please don't assume it's God's punishment. Please don't tell me to run and hide from it. In fact, he says, please just sit quietly so we can begin to think clearly. I appreciate Charles Swindoll's commentary on that scene. He says, we don't like to suffer. And in our compassion, we don't like to see other people suffer. And so our instincts are, instincts are aimed at preventing and alleviating suffering. And no doubt that's a good impulse. But if we really want to care, he says, for those who are suffering, we should be careful not to be like Job's friends, not to do our helping with the presumption that we can fix things, get rid of them, or make them better. Job resolutely declares, I accept my suffering and I choose to learn from it. Not I deserve, not I love or understand my suffering, I accept it which is an action of his will, his spirit. Suffering, Job says, will be my opportunity to trust God and have him show me the things I am otherwise missing. God's wisdom and understanding will and can eclipse my pain and panic. And he's calling us to enter the suffering with him, to be present as we are able, to enter the discomforting mystery and to look for God in it. Job gained wisdom and understanding by doing this and subsequently blazed a hard trail of renewed perspective and priorities for us to follow. So what are we to do with his example? I can tell you right now, if you wait to tackle this in the midst of your suffering, in all likelihood, the suffering will distract you, it will consume you, and it's going to dictate your response in an unhealthy way. But while we're in healthy spaces, we can make preemptive, intentional choices with accompanying actions. So today, can I invite you to do something actually simple and yet profound? Can I invite you to begin with conversations? First, start a conversation with God. Talk to Him about the next time suffering is going to come. What are your fears around that? What are your desired outcomes for that time? Take time to pray and to journal what you know to be true of God so that you can remind yourself when that suffering comes of who God is. Ask now, invite the Holy Spirit now to renew your mind during those times when suffering comes. Start that conversation with God so it's easier to continue in the middle of suffering. Secondly, start a conversation today with someone close to you, a partner, a friend, a spouse, a parent. Confide your fears around suffering. Maybe talk through Job's example and the priorities that you want this other person that you're going to talk to to remind you of next time you face the challenges, you face the suffering. Give each other permission to actively care and to hold each other accountable. Friends, we often talk about preparing ourselves for the inevitability of death by having a will and discussing afterlife wishes. That's wise planning. How about preparing ourselves for the inevitability of suffering by having similar conversations around that suffering, that impending hardship, even writing down our priorities based on Job's model? If we know suffering is going to come, why not prepare ourselves by proactively enlisting the help of others? Parents, you can be prepping your children for the realities of suffering, both from a physical, emotional perspective, but also from a biblical and a spiritual perspective. It starts with conversations that are real, that are supportive, that are practical, hopeful, 
based on who we are as humanity and who God is as divinity. All our lives, the world will tell us to resist suffering and whenever possible, avoid or escape it. That's the culture we live in. Job teaches us something far more valuable and life-giving. Sit with each other. Remind each other of a biblical perspective on suffering. Recite to each other who God is and cling to these truths as the inevitable happens. When we do these things, Suffering turns from being unpalatable to digestible. We can actually seize God's opportunity for suffering to clarify our priorities and focus us on the eternal aspects of life if we choose to do this. So as we close today, I want to encourage each of us to pray this prayer to that end. Friends, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Meet me in my brokenness and in my suffering. Holy Spirit, as the inevitable challenges and suffering comes, heal me. Renew me. Turn my thoughts to God my Father, who alone knows me and has gifts of wisdom and understanding for me. God, three in one, work for my good and for your glory, I pray. Amen.